Pastor Xavier Reese says, if you want to get right with God, it's His way or the highway. If you try to come to God by your own works, you'll never make it. If you try to come to God because you're a moral person, you'll never make it. If you try to come to God because you have a theological degree, you'll never make it. You've got to come through the one who has power and honor and authority, Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. That's power. That's authority. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Whether it's good works, good morals, modern theology, if it's not the gospel that Jesus taught, God has no use for it in winning souls for Him. So when the New Testament disciples saw the gospel being manipulated and interpreted to serve men's purposes rather than God's, the Apostle Peter set out to set the record straight. Let's listen now to the Simple Truth study titled, You Can Trust God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21 through 21. Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There is a tremendous attack today against the Scriptures. And that's always one of the major ways by which error comes. People start tampering with the Scriptures. People start exalting their academic achievement to reinterpret, and really, it, it, it's, it really fits the, the scene because we're interpreting our Constitution, reinterpreting our Constitution of the United States, so why not reinterpret the Scriptures? And you see the whole spirit of our country, where it's going. Peter here, as his theme, is faithfulness in the day of apostasy. False doctrine had entered in, denying the Lord who had bought them, chapter 2, verse 1 says. They were also denying the second coming of the Lord in chapter 3, verse 4. And so Peter is warning the believer in regards to being led away by error. Chapters 3, verse 17, and growth, verse 18. And so really, how is it that we can keep ourselves from being led astray by error? Simple. Peter says, grow. Grow spiritually in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He uses the word gnosis, just facts, information, knowledge about God. But then he uses the word epinosis many more times within this epistle, which means a full, mature, personal relationship. Not just information, but a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Why are so many churches dead spiritually? Because they have opted out for information and not relationship. And therefore they have ceased to grow. 
They've made a commitment to Christ, they've been born again, but they've ceased to grow in the relationship. So there's no life. There are many marriages like that. There's no life in their marriage. Now that doesn't mean that we're never married. It means that they stop to cultivate and grow in their marriage relationship. And such is the case in so many Christians and so many churches. But it's interesting, we're all looking for the key thing. We're asking pastors, what is your secret? What are you doing? Is it the carpet because it's red? Is it the pews because they're striped? Is it whatever? How do you get all these people? Are you giving lollipops? Are you giving plates? What are you giving? Instead of just being obedient to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Teach the word, feed the sheep, and the sheep will beget sheep. Healthy sheep reproduce. Now because of these heretics who are denying both the Lord and the Scriptures, Peter turns to assure them of the Scriptures as being from God. I think this is so important today. You need to know that you can trust the Scriptures as being genuine from God. How often you and I have heard and people say, well, how do you know that what you have is a Scripture? I mean, men wrote them. I mean, do you really believe that what you have is, is the Word of God? Do you really believe that those guys were just like vehicles, instruments, and, and it's without air? Hang on to your seat, I do. <laughs> if you believe that, you're the exception today, even within Christians, as I show you through the study. You need to have confidence in the Word of God, because if you cannot be assured that what you have is the Word of God, then you're in deep trouble. Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? If somebody can bring doubt to a certain section of Scripture, how do you know the others are okay? And if they're going to be the ones to tell you what is inspired and what isn't, that makes them the authority and not the Scriptures. The Bible teaches that the Scriptures are inspired, not the men. They were carried along as we will see. And so I pray that you open your heart and your mind this morning to see what the Scriptures say. Because there is a tremendous attack today on the integrity and the validity and the inspiration of Scripture. And the major attack is not from outside Christendom, from, from within in our seminaries, from so-called theologians. I've sat in classes where professors as well, it's the Word of God and it is infallible, but it's not inerrant. There are mistakes here, there are embellishments, baloney. Because they can't figure things out and correlate them in harmony. They, they start saying, well, there's errors, there's, there's embellishments, there's exaggerations. No, no, no. I come with my Western mind, I come with my limited mind, and I bring my problems to the text. They're my problems, not the problems of the text. But after all, man has arrived today. Isn't that what they tell us? And so Peter is going to put the gospel message and the Old Testament scripture side by side and make them of equal authority. Keep in mind that as we go through the scripture, that they didn't have anything but the Old Testament canon when Peter was speaking to them. They didn't have a Ryrie Bible. They didn't have a Townsend chain. They didn't have the New Testament canon. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. Now Peter uses two elements that are common to all of us and are accepted by our all, all of our judicial system. First, his personal recollection. He's a night witness. Verses 16 through 18. Secondly, the prophetic revelation, which is evidence. Verses 19 through 21. Now you go to court with eyewitnesses and evidence and your case is pretty well sealed and shut. 
Now you go to court with just eyewitnesses and you lack evidence, it may be shaky. You go to court with evidence but no eyewitnesses, it still be shaky. But you go with both of them and your case is pretty well air shut. These are the two elements that Peter is going to use. Peter begins by his personal recollection as a witness in verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, first he gives us a negative. Peter denies that the gospel is a myth. For we have not followed cunning device fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So his focus first is on the gospel. The New Testament that was not yet put together. The record of Jesus. The message of Jesus. The person of Jesus. The promises of Jesus. The word fable means myth or stories. Paul the Apostle uses his word throughout the pastoral epistles. He says, teach the word and don't follow fables, myths, stories, endless genealogies. And so the word fable stands in direct opposition to the truth. Peter is saying, what we're telling you is truth, not lies. The word follow means to follow out to a conclusion, to pursue a line of thought to its termination. The word only appears three times in the New Testament. Every time it appears in Second Peter. Here's one of them. The second one in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says many will follow their destructive ways of the heretics. The third one in verse 15 of chapter 2, where he speaks about they forsook the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam. Peter uses the very same word for himself. He used the very same word for the heretics and for the deceived. He says we have followed step by step very closely, not only by what we observe, but by comparing it to Scripture. And we found it to be accurate, true, genuine. He uses the same word for those who are deceiving, those who are deceiving. And he says that the very same way that we believe people are deceived by following a step by step. It's progressive. And to reaffirm and strengthen the word fable, which means myth or story, he says cunningly devised, which means artifully spun. In other words, when you look at a, a garment that is artifully spun, you, you get caught up not only with, with the garment itself, but with the design and the colors and what it has, and you're overawed over it. And that's how men deceived. They package everything real carefully designed so it's spectacular. It grips you, and it disguises the lie and the false uh, doctrine. Let me, let's face it, if it wasn't deceptive doctrine, you wouldn't fall for it. If it wasn't deception, you would know it was. If you weren't deceived, you would know that it wasn't the truth. It's very obvious. Now he relates this to when we made known to you the power of Jesus. You see, Peter is saying, you know, when we told you about Jesus' life and all that he did, you know, we didn't fabricate these things. The word power, there is dunamis. We get our word dynamic or dynamite from it. Isn't it interesting that sometimes it's hard for us to believe some of the things we read about Jesus? <laughs> I mean, face it. When you read about him walking on the water, do you ever say, <sighs> kind of hard, isn't it? Sometimes our natural mind gets in there and goes, well, Lord, if you, you know, just for a split second. But that element is there with us. And it's the Spirit of God that brings us to reality. But I'm sure as they were sharing about him turning the water into wine, people said, come on. As they shared about him multiplying the bread. I'm sure it was hard to believe. The healing of the leopard. The woman with the issue of blood. How about Jairus' daughter? Lazarus. Kind of hard. 
calming the sea, the storms. How about being raised from the dead? But Peter makes the context here the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is saying that when, what he saw in the Transfiguration was power. Power. They saw Jesus transfigured before them. They saw him glorified. They saw Moses. They saw Elijah. They were talking about the kingdom. They were talking about Jesus' exodus, his disease, his dying and leaving this world. We related this power, this testimony of power to you. And it wasn't a myth. It wasn't a story. We didn't take a tab of acid and went up to the mountain. We didn't flip out. We didn't hallucinate. These are facts. And then he says, when we made known the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for coming is parousia. Two words, para, means alongside. We get our word parallel from it. The other one is usia, to be in other words, a personal presence. We didn't make stories up when we told you about the Lord's coming. It, doesn't, it isn't something that all 12 of us got together and fabricated. The prophets prophesied. Jesus confirmed it. Jesus told it. Now some declare that this is in reference to the first coming. And truly some consider that the first coming of God to the earth is kind of a story. Don't they? We tell people that God came the first time. Oh, come on. You mean Jesus? Oh, yeah, He's God. Oh, okay. <laughs> they think it hard that God came the first time. How much more difficult do they have in believing that He'll come a second time? And so some think that Peter is referring here to the first coming. Now, we know that in Scripture we can attest to His first coming in, in John and Colossians. Uh, he is the visible form of the invisible God. In Him you're complete. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He emptied himself of his glory and he took on the form of a servant. In him was written the volume of the book and he came to fulfill it. We saw him, we handled him, he was the word of life, First John says. So we know that the scriptures confirm of his first coming. But I think what Peter has in mind here is his second coming. Because as he's writing this epistle, when the same word appears in chapter 3, verse 4, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12... It all speaks of a second coming. And what Peter has in mind here is growing spiritually after being saved in order not to be deceived in view of the Lord's coming. That's his theme. That's his emphasis. Remember that prior to reading Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, you have to back up two verses on the previous chapter. He says, I tell you, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death. You see the Son of Man coming in power and glory in the kingdom. And so we read up to that chapter, we forget it. And the next day we read chapter 17, verse 1, and we forget the connection. Don't stop. Read right on. It says, and then they went up to a mountain and he was transfigured before them. He says, there's three of you here that are not going to die till you see me coming in the kingdom in power and glory. Where did they see that? In the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you know what the Mount of Transfiguration is? The preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they saw it before they died. That's what it is. For Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus about his, the word is exodus. The very same word that Peter uses for himself in verse 14 about his decease, his death. They saw it. And so Peter says, we're not telling lies. They're not fabrications. 
They're not fables. They're not myths. It's truth from the very mouth of Jesus by our own witness. Then on the positive side, Peter says, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The word eyewitnesses only appears one time in the New Testament and it's right here. It's a technical term for for mystery religions and it's used of a person who had been fully initiated into the cult and allowed to watch a secret ritual. How interesting. What did they see up in the Mount of Transfiguration? (laughs) The second coming. Very important word that he's using. Peter knew that they would know what he meant by using this special word, let alone the testimony of where it happened and what happened. What was it they saw? Majesty, superbness, visible splendor. Three times this word appears in the New Testament. Once here, the other time in Acts 19.27 when it describes the magnificence of the goddess Diana. And the third time in Luke 9.43 when they were all amazed at the majesty of God when Jesus cast out the demon from the boy a day after the transfiguration. Superbness. Visible splendor is what they saw. Now where did Peter see this? He says right there in verse 18, the holy mountain. Now one of the misconceptions that people get into is to ascribe holiness to a place of its own self. The Bible never does so. The Bible only declares something to be holy because God is present or it belongs to Him. Moses was up in the mountain and says it was a holy mount. Why? Because God was present. He says, take your shoes off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. The word holy is the word hagios. We get our root word for saint, set apart, sanctified. And so there is no holiness by our own virtue. But when God is present in us and through us, then we become His. Therefore, we are holy. Nothing holy about that mount. But when God was present there, it was holy right then and there for that time. And that's why he says, holy mount. Right there they saw him transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Mark 9 says, white as snow. Luke 9.29 says, white and glistening. He was metamorphosed, transfigured to that kingdom time when he would return. Notice he says, we, who? Peter, James, and John. Now why did Jesus pick those three and not all twelve of them? God is sovereign. Why does God allow some men to be used more than others? God is sovereign. But you know what the snare is? That I start thinking that God uses me because I'm holy. Because I'm more faithful than everybody else. God blesses my church because of my prayer and my fasting. Oh, no, no. Are you telling me Balaam's jackass prayed and fasted? God uses me in spite of myself. Because He honors His Son and His Word. Grab a hold of that when you try to justify your compromise with sin with what God is doing in your life. And you say, well, God can't mind too much because look how He's blessing. Oh, He'll settle with you later on. Don't worry about that. He's no hurry. What a snare it is at times we start attributing the 
benefit and the blessing of God to me. Yes, it's me, my teaching, my praying, my fasting, my faith. Puke. It's God's sovereignty, His grace, His love for His people. It's what it is. We are so quick to impress people in glory in our own fertilizer, as Paul says. <laughs> our dunghill. The first aspect of the majesty they witnessed was honor. Christ received from the Father honor in verse 17. This refers to His position and authority. All three Gospels record the voice from heaven. And all three Gospels say this, Hear Him. Notice the progression of Peter. He begins with the Gospel, which speaks of the person of Christ. And he says, God the Father said, Hear Him. What does the Old Testament say? Hear me. What is he saying? Old and New Testament, both equal in authority. Both the same God. I love it. John 3.16 God so loved the world. John 14.6 I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. That's power. That's honor. That's authority. If you try to come to God by your own works, you'll never make it. If you try to come to God because you're a moral person, you'll never make it. If you try to come to God because you have a theological degree, you'll never make it. If you come to God because you have been so faithful in a ministry, you'll never make it. You've got to come through the one who has power and honor and authority, Jesus Christ. He says at the right hand of the Father, the position of authority and power, the right hand. Acts 4.12, no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. And so he received honor first of all, but secondly he says... The second aspect of the majesty they witnessed was glory that he received. The word is doxa, dignity, appearance. The Old Testament spoke much about the glory of God. Moses in Exodus 33, 18 says, God, let me see your glory. The glory was always identified with the physical manifestation of God in some way, shape, or form to know that God was present. Be it in the cloud, in the pillar of fire, or an earthquake, or something. God would give some visible Evidence of his presence. And Moses says, Let me see your glory, God. And God says, Oh, Moses, you don't understand. You can't see my glory. I'll wipe you out. Oh, come on, Lord, let me see your glory. He says, Okay, go by the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand in front of your face. I'm going to cover your mug, Moses, and then when I pass by you, I'm going to take it off and let you see my afterglow. Even in that little glimpse, he had to veil his face. His face did shine. Jesus received glory. You know what Isaiah the prophet prayed in Isaiah 64.1? Oh, that God would rent the heavens. That He would tear the heavens open and come down. Jesus was the prayer answered of Isaiah. God rent the heavens and came down. And manifested His glory. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person, the infulgence. God, who at sundry times and diverse manner spoken time past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His dear Son. Jesus, period. He is the ultimate glory that you're ever going to see on this side of eternity. You won't see any other glory. He is it. 
Pastor Xavier Reese, describing not only the glory of God, but the manner in which His glory was manifested on earth, by way of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if today's study is one you'd like to get your own personal copy of, as always, we're pleased to be able to provide that to you on CD. Now, the title to ask for is simply, You Can Trust God's Word. We just ask that you send along $4 to help cover the costs. Now, that title, once again, is You Can Trust God's Word. Request yours by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address, once again, is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please help us by including the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. Trust in the Lord. The simple truth of Proverbs 3 is, lean not on your own understanding. More simple truths for trusting God's Word with Pastor Xavier Reese next time. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 